Today and every Sunday, millions of Christians around the world celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is perhaps the most difficult truth of Christianity to accept. What about you? Do, do you accept the truth that a formerly dead man got up from the dead after he was crucified? and laid in a garden tomb three days prior. Jesus' disciples believed this, and they, they went around telling everyone that it happened. They even died for the truth that Jesus' resurrection took place. Contrast this to what took place just a few years ago. Contrast this to what took place with the world-renowned cyclist Lance Armstrong's disciples in 2012. In 2012, the cycling world turned against Lance Armstrong. The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency released a withering decision against Armstrong, a decision which was backed by more than a thousand pages of documentation. Included in that documentation were sworn statements, from more than two dozen witnesses, 11 of which were former teammates of Lance Armstrong. Some have described Armstrong's scheme for cheating as one of the most sophisticated conspiracies in history. The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency claimed that Armstrong participated in and led a lengthy conspiracy to use illicit drugs and blood transfusions in order to give himself a leg up on the competition and while at the same time using a number of complicated techniques and testing to, to avoid testing positively, uh, the evidence against Armstrong was so overwhelming that virtually all of his sponsors dropped him nearly immediately. Armstrong succeeded for a long time in covering up the truth, but we can hardly be surprised that his many lies were unveiled. His teammates, assistants, and confidants eventually turned on him and told the truth. No one dies for a lie. And as, as far as I'm aware, no one did in this instance. And, and most don't want their careers and lives ruined by a lie. So those who had previously served in Armstrong's deception eventually told the truth. You see, normal human beings crack under pressure. Not one, but 11 of Armstrong's former teammates cracked. Not one, but 15 additional witnesses came forward. Do you know how many of Jesus' disciples came forward and said that Jesus didn't really get up from the dead? Zero. And do you know why? Because it was the truth. Jesus really did get up from the dead. And if church historians are right, 11 of Jesus' disciples died for their faith and proclamation of Jesus' resurrection. The only one who didn't die a martyr's death died as an exile. He taught that Jesus' resurrection proved that he was the Lord and that Caesar wasn't. And so he died in exile. His name is John. And this morning, we turn to consider his eyewitness account of the risen Savior. This morning, we turn to examine the resurrection of Jesus Christ from John chapter 20. And we're not examining an Armstrong-like cover-up. No, we are examining the truth. And the truth is this. The crucified and buried man, uh, dead man Jesus got up from the dead nearly 2,000 years ago. And as we prepare to look at John's account of the resurrection, it's important to remember what John's gospel is about. If you were to take kind of this afternoon and, and reread John's gospel, one of the things that you would find is that from the very beginning of John's gospel, from the very beginning of his eyewitness account, John actually kept pointing us as readers to Jesus' cross and resurrection. In, in John chapter 1, for example, we're told that the Word became flesh 
so that he could be the sacrificial lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. John was looking forward to Jesus' death. Then in John chapter 2, Jesus predicted that if the temple of his body was destroyed, three days later, it would be raised. Looking forward to the resurrection. We could walk through each and every chapter and see that John's eyes are clearly fixed on Jesus' death and resurrection. Even while he recounts the miracles and teachings of Jesus. On Friday night, this past Friday night during our Good Friday service, we learned that Jesus was arrested and tried before the Jewish authorities. We also learned that he was tried before Roman authorities. Though no one could find any fault in him, he was convicted, crucified, and his dead body was laid in a garden tomb. One would think that we've reached the end of what John had to say about Jesus. The king of the Jews had died. A massive stone had been rolled in front of Jesus' tomb so that, as one children's author put it, no one could get in or out. With Jesus' body enshrouded in darkness of the stone-sealed tomb, what more could be said about the story of Jesus? Well, because John has told his readers all throughout his gospel that Jesus' death would not be the end, we know that Jesus' death is not the end. There's still more to come. And this morning, as we study John chapter 20, we not only see that sunlight had broken into that dark tomb, but that Jesus broke out. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, the passage that we're looking at together this morning, it begins on page 906. We're going to look at this passage in four sections. First, the Savior's appearance. Sorry, the Savior's absence. Second, the Savior's appearance. Third, the Savior's ambassadors. And fourth, the Savior's admonition. And I'll repeat each of those points as we're kind of working our way through John chapter 20. Uh, let's begin with our first point, the Savior's absence. The Savior's absence. And as we do, uh, let me read the first ten verses of John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Chapter 20, as you see there, uh, opens by John noting that it was the first day of the week. In fact, all four New Testament Gospels record that detail. When you, when you move out from the Gospels in the New Testament, uh, this phrase, the first day of the week, is, is often connected with the worship gathering of Christians. It's later called the Lord's Day. And that makes a great deal of sense, given that we as Christians worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week. Every Sunday we gather, we are celebrating Easter all over again. The time marker of the first day of the week was not only important for establishing a future pattern for Christian worship, it was also, and more important, uh, for establishing Christ's resurrection on the third day. Jesus had been laid in a garden tomb late on Friday afternoon. Verse 1 assumes that the tomb was covered by a large stone when it says that Mary Magdalene saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Jesus' body remained in the grave Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, and for those of you who, who may be a bit flustered by this kind of chronology, 
noting that Jesus' body was not in the tomb for the full three days, um, you, you shouldn't really be flustered by this. In the first century, they didn't really account for time in the same way that, that we do today. We account for time in a much more precise uh, manner uh, than those in the first century did. Still, it's, it's appropriate uh, for us to say that Jesus' body was in the grave three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Either way, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early in the day. When she sees that the stone had been, stone had been taken away, she's surprised, and she runs to tell Peter and the other disciple, who, who we actually know to be John, the author of this gospel. Uh, Mary's first thought is not that Jesus got up from the dead. That's not the first thing that she thinks. Instead, the first thing that she thinks is that Jesus' body has been moved. Did you notice that? Many, many people have tried to say that Jesus' disciples robbed his grave or that someone else did or that he merely swooned on the cross and regained strength in the cool of the tomb. None of those explanations actually make sense of the Savior's absence. None of them make sense of the empty tomb. Just take, for example, Mary's thought that Jesus' body had been moved. You don't put that kind of statement on the lips of one of Jesus' followers and first eyewitnesses of his resurrection if you're trying to perpetuate a lie. And you don't do it repeatedly, as we'll see Mary offer this thought a few more times. In other words, if Jesus didn't really get up from the grave and John the author of this gospel is trying to cover it up through this account. He's started off on the wrong foot. If you want to perpetuate a myth, then you have everybody telling the exact same story. It's like the three criminals who have been kind of rounded up for robbing a bank. And just before they get hauled in to give their, their testimony, they all get their stories straight. That's the last thing they do. But Mary's First thought is not that Jesus had been raised. And for that matter, in verse 9, Peter and John are portrayed as oblivious. They did not, you see there, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You, you don't make the leaders of a new movement look so unaware if you're trying to get that movement going. Just think about how uh, the various leaders of new movements were portrayed at the outset of the movement, other movements in history. How was Muhammad portrayed? What about Joseph Smith? What about Bab, the first leader of the Baha'i faith? These leading figures of new and developing movements were portrayed as being intellectually impeccable, rigorously righteous, and flawlessly faithful. But we don't get such a neat and cleaned up picture of the disciples of Jesus. We get a picture of real human beings. We get an honest picture we see men bumbling about, trying to figure out what happened, and women who are confused by these events. What real human being wouldn't be stunned and confused by the Savior's absence from the tomb? John's gospel has the, the texture of authenticity in its account. That John is giving this real-life eyewitness account makes a great deal of sense given how descriptive these verses are. Who would know that the other disciple outran Peter but did not go into the tomb other than the person recording the account? When John mentions that he and Peter both saw the linen cloths lying there, the description is peculiar. From this description, we don't... We don't get the sense that Jesus' body had been removed in great haste as a grave robber would have done, especially given that there were guards stationed at the tomb. Even if grave robbers were able to overcome the heavily armed Roman guard, do we really think they would take time to unwrap the body that they were stealing with a prospect of reinforcements on the way? Here, through John's eyes, we are seeing the first clues that Jesus was in fact raised from the grave just as the scriptures foretold. That is still not all that Peter and John see. They see the face cloth folded up. Other translations uh, translate that phrase rolled up. One of two things is taking place here. Either Jesus kind of passed right through those, those wrappings uh, like he did his, his grave clothes and he's kind of retained the shape of his head or once Jesus was raised through his grave clothes, he very methodically folded or, or rolled it up, that, that face cloth. Either way, this 
further underscores the very unlikely nature of Jesus' body being stolen. It also argues against the view that Jesus merely swooned on the cross and regained his strength in the cool of the tomb. The swoon theory is, is really beyond absurd as an explanation for the empty tomb. Would a man who had been savagely beaten, his skull crowned with piercing thorns, nailed to a piece of wood with spikes, suffocated, and his side pierced with a spear so that blood and water flowed, would he really take the time to position his grave clothes in such a, a neat way before trying to move a massive stone that locked him in a dark tomb. Not only that, but he would then have to take on the armed Roman soldiers standing guard outside the tomb. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is still the most factually plausible explanation for the empty tomb, and that's because it really happened. It had to happen. Our faith, however, does not rest upon reason. It rests upon God's revelation. Reason is very often coordinate with faith, but it does not triumph over faith. Reason does not form the fundamental foundation of our faith. Reason alone will never form the foundation of our faith because reason is handled by flawed and sinful human beings. God's revelation, however, is flawless and without error. Though Peter and John did not as of yet understand God's revelation, the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead, as verse 9 says, they soon would. They would soon come to see how the Old Testament scriptures, such as Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, predicted Christ's resurrection. They would soon come to see that God's revelation was fulfilled and brought to reality in their own lifetime. As of yet, they did not have the full picture, and so they went back to their homes. Having considered the Savior's absence, let's turn now and consider our second point, the Savior's appearance. And as we do, uh, let me read John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Well, with Peter and John having gone back to their homes, Mary remains outside the tomb weeping. She, she loved the Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 8, verse 2, we're told that Mary had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Jesus, you see, he had done so much for her. She had watched in horror as the kindest man that she had ever met was crucified. And now his body was gone. She had initially come to the tomb to mourn and to apply additional spices to the body of Jesus. But from her perspective, you notice, from her perspective, someone had moved the body and tampered with the grave. In the midst of her weeping, she stoops to look into the grave 
And when she does, she sees two angels sitting where, Jesus, where the body of Jesus had been laid. One at the head and one at the feet. Now usually in the Bible when people encounter angels, uh, they are struck with fear. Matthew, Matthew's gospel, recounts Mary's fear. But John kind of omits Mary's fear, probably because the main emotion he wants us to feel is her grief turned to joy at the sight of Jesus when she finally recognizes him. Jesus had told his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 20, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Mary's sorrow isn't turned into joy all at once. Her sorrow certainly isn't turned into joy when she peers into the tomb. After Mary answers the angel's question about why she's weeping, she turns around and she sees Jesus standing there. And John makes it clear that she failed to notice, that Mary failed to recognize Jesus. John tells us there in verse 15 that she mistook Jesus for a gardener. Again, that's not a good way to present the first eyewitnesses if you are making up a story to perpetuate a myth. And at that time, Mary would have been, frankly, considered a poor choice as an eyewitness. You see, in, in a first century court of law, women were not generally allowed to give, uh, to give testimony as a witness. Even if there were multiple women, they often wouldn't be allowed to give credible testimony. Sadly, the culture was wrongly suspicious of women in their testimony. But this story isn't made up. This is really what happened. And John is being a faithful historian. Jesus, he speaks to Mary and he asks her the same question that the angels asked her. Why are you weeping? Mary thinks that Jesus is a gardener and that he may have something to do with Jesus' body being moved. In fact, he does, but not in the way that she is thinking here. Now pause and ask yourself this question. Why do you think Mary mistook Jesus for a gardener? If you look at the few verses before chapter 20, if you look up at the last few verses of chapter 19, specifically John chapter 19, verse 41, the place where Jesus was crucified was in a garden. And in the tomb, uh, he was, his body was laid in a, in a garden tomb. In fact, if you were here with us in, in the Good Friday service, uh, then you'll recall, recall that the whole passion narrative, John's whole passion narrative, is actually set in a garden. It began in chapter 18 in a garden. Could it be that John wants us to remember what took place in the garden mentioned at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapters 1 to 3? Now, if you know how the Bible opens up, then you know that God created man in His image, he breathed life into him and he set him in a beautiful garden. And sadly, it was in that garden that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned against God. They brought sin and death into the world. When Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener, could it be that we are being reintroduced to Jesus as the last Adam? That's what the Apostle Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. And referring to Jesus in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, Paul even tells us that Adam was a type of one who was to come. Could it be that what we are learning here is that the sinful disobedience which led to death in that garden in Genesis is being undone in this garden through Jesus' resurrection to life and victory? Over death. Could it be that what we are seeing unfolded here is that the corruption of the creation is being overturned by the dawning of the new creation in Jesus' resurrection from the dead? That is exactly what is happening here. And Jesus knows it. He is not at all offended by Mary thinking of him as a gardener. Instead, Jesus asks Mary another question. In verse 15, Jesus says to her, whom are you seeking? Mary is seeking Jesus, the one who was laid in that garden tomb. And then 
Jesus reveals himself to Mary. By doing what? By calling her name. He says to her, Mary. And Mary then turns and cries out with joy. Teacher, when I read this exchange between Jesus and Mary, I couldn't help but think of, of Jesus' good shepherd just discourse in John chapter 10 in this same gospel. In, in, especially in John chapter 10, verse 3, we, we read this. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus called Mary's name as she recognized the voice of the good shepherd. She not only recognized his voice, but she clung to him. I love it that Jesus calls Mary by name. And that that is the moment which she recognizes him. Our Savior has done the exact same thing with us, with all those who believe. He has called us by name. Though we have not had the, had the privilege of, of hearing the Savior's voice audibly call our name, we know that if we have faith in Christ that our name has been called. And just as Mary was filled with joy, so should we be filled with joy. Why? Because Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. It is the combination of Jesus' substitutionary life, death, and resurrection that we can be justified and accepted as righteous in God's sight. And as the people of God, this should fill us with joy and deep gratefulness. Our lives should be filled with the same kind of thanks and joy that we see in Mary. He did so much for her, and he has done so much for us. Now, Jesus' response to Mary is admittedly strange at first. He tells her not to cling to him because he has not yet ascended to the Father. Jesus is, is likely telling Mary, you don't have to hold on to me. I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm risen, and I'm, I've not yet ascended to the Father. This is a time to joyfully tell others the good news. In addition to this, Jesus is also making clear that his disciples have entered into a, a strange period of time. It's a temporary and transitory period, the period between his resurrection from the grave and his return to heaven. John's gospel always kind of presents Jesus as looking forward to kind of the next stage in redemptive history. And that is what seems to be taking place here. While Jesus' disciples ought to be joyful about his resurrection, they ought not get comfortable with his presence on earth, for he is going to return to his heavenly home. Jesus' disciples ought to be joyful at his resurrection. But they should also take joy in his coming ascension. For Jesus is going to prepare a place for them in his Father's house, just as he promised in John chapter 14, verse 2. Mary, as you'll see there, she is to tell Jesus' disciples that he is ascending to the Father. But notice the, the wonderful familial language that Jesus uses there in verse 17. If you take a look at verse 17, Jesus tells Mary to say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. My Father, your Father. My God, your God. And as we see here, Jesus incorporates those who believe in him into the family of God. And the old covenant refrain that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will be your God and you will be my people, comes into realization through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Mary joyfully obeys the Lord and announces the Savior's appearance. She announces the good news that he's risen. He's risen indeed. And having considered the Savior's appearance to Mary, let's turn now and consider our third point the Savior's ambassadors. The Savior's ambassadors. And here we're going to read John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. As of verse 19 there in John's account, Jesus has yet to appear to the disciples. But not much time passes before he does. While Jesus appeared to Mary earlier in that morning on the first day of the week, Jesus appears to his disciples on the evening of that day. John makes clear that the doors were locked in the room in which the disciples were gathered. And they were there because they were afraid of the Jews. Jesus' disciples had good reason to be afraid of the Jews. Their leader, their master, their Lord, Jesus, had been brought up on trumped charges. He had been beaten and summarily executed. Who is to say the same end would not befall them as well? Added to this is the fact that the tomb is now empty. The Jewish authorities might want to make a special inquisition into that matter as well. Jesus' appearance in that locked room was no doubt a miracle. And lest we think that Jesus now somehow has an immaterial body, John stresses that Jesus, he stood among them and showed them his hands and his side, as verse 20 said. Jesus was physically and bodily in their presence. Jesus' resurrection from the grave was a bodily resurrection. When Jesus came into their presence, he, he uttered a familiar word, peace be with you. Jesus spoke a word of peace to his disciples in the upper room during his farewell discourse in John 14. And one has to wonder if uh, Jesus' disciples were in that very same room. Either way, due to Jesus' cross and resurrection, the peace that Jesus now speaks carries a deeper meaning. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished on the cross, he secured peace between God and all of those who would ever turn from their sins and believe in Him. Peace is not the only word that Jesus speaks to His disciples. Jesus also gives His disciples a commissioning word, saying in verse 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. All throughout John's Gospel, Jesus has been telling His hearers that He was sent by the Father. We see this in John chapter 6, verse 38, where Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And then a couple of chapters later, in John chapter 8, verse 29, we read, And he who sent me is with me. You see, throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been telling us that he was sent by the Father, and that he's also been telling his disciples that he would send them too. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And then in John chapter 17 verse 18. A verse which echoes the verse we're looking at here. John chapter 20 verse 21. Jesus said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. There are a couple of important things to recognize about this commission from Jesus. First, there's continuity with the mission of the Son. In the same manner that the Father sent the Son... So the Son is sending the disciples. The Father sent the Son of the world to redeem His lost sheep. And the disciples share continuity with that mission in the sense that they proclaim the accomplishment of that mission. To put it slightly differently, the disciples' mission is now to proclaim that the Son has completed the work that the Father sent Him to do. Also, the word for sending in the Greek here is where we get the word apostle which simply means sent one. Here Jesus' disciples are uniquely commissioned as his sent ones. Then in verse 22, something strange happened, but something that had precedent in the Old Testament. It's initially connected with the disciples' commissioning, and it's intimately connected with their commissioning too. Jesus, he breathes on his disciples. 
And he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Given that the themes of of Genesis and the creation account are lingering in the background of this passage, this feels something like an echo of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God, the Lord God, formed Adam and breathed into his nostrils and he became a living creature. The first day of creation's renewal is on the day of the Lord's resurrection. And these men are being commissioned to proclaim that the new creation has dawned in Jesus Christ and in His work. Still there's more. For this is also something of an enacted parable. What Jesus is doing here is pronouncing that they would soon receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This reading best explains the actions of the disciples between Christ's resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. After Jesus' appearance, they still fearfully remain huddled in a room, locked together. Even an entire week later, John chapter 20, verse 26. It's not really until the Spirit is poured out on Pentecost that they begin acting like they are the Savior's ambassadors who have been sent to preach the forgiveness of sins. We know that God and God alone can forgive sins. So when Jesus says in verse 23... If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. And what he is saying is that the ministry of preaching the gospel is a continuation of Jesus' ministry of forgiveness and condemnation. Through the apostles' proclamation, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will loose men from their chains of sin and death, or men will incur as they hold on to their sins and reject, they will incur condemnation as they hold on to their sins and reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. This statement is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, when he says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The ministry of the gospel, preaching the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection, is God's ministry. These men would be engaged in a ministry that's akin to Ezekiel's ministry of speaking to dry bones. We read about earlier in the service. God, through the apostles' ministry of preaching and teaching and through our ministry today, as we share the gospel with our loved ones and co-workers and friends, is actually a resurrection ministry. When we proclaim the gospel and the Holy Spirit attends that ministry and that proclamation Holy Spirit attends it with His power. Dead men are forgiven and brought to life like the bones in Ezekiel's vision were. Now, we're not like the apostles in that we haven't been immediately or without a barrier commissioned by Jesus, by God in the flesh. But we too have been sent out by God to proclaim the good news to the lost. Every Christian is an ambassador For God, for Jesus Christ. And we are responsible to make Him known. Brother or sister, when the Lord gives you the privilege of sharing the good news, make sure that it's undergirded by prayer. Pray that God would make the person you're sharing the gospel with alive in Christ. Pray that the new creation power of the resurrection would take place in their heart. The apostles are uniquely the Savior's ambassador. And we, in a derivative sense, are the Savior's ambassadors too. They and we have been endowed with authority to speak on His behalf. So let's give ourselves to that work. Whether it be getting together a couple of folks and trotting around the neighborhood and knocking on doors to share the good news, or whether that be telling your coworker or friend about Jesus and inviting them to the church, let's be a congregation of busy ambassadors proclaiming the good news of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Well, having considered the Savior's ambassadors, let's turn now and consider our fourth and final point, the Savior's admonition. Read John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands 
mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. No less than seven times does the subject of belief, believing, or unbelief come up in this section. At the middle of it all is Savior's admonition to Thomas to believe. John tells us there in verse 24 that Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus had appeared to them the week before. The others have certainly communicated to Thomas that they had seen him, but Thomas wants to see Jesus for himself. He doesn't just want to see Jesus, he also wants to put his finger into the mark of the nails and place his hand into his side. Perhaps Thomas thinks that his fellow disciples were experiencing some kind of euphoria in the days following Christ's crucifixion. Either way, Thomas, he, he wants the cold, hard facts. Thomas has been reasonably called Doubting Thomas, but perhaps a more accurate description of Thomas at this point would be unbelieving Thomas. He doesn't believe. His, his reply is emphatic to his fellow disciples. He says, unless he sees Jesus and touches him for himself, he says that he will never believe. Never. Perhaps many of us would make that same demand were we in Thomas' shoes. We can identify with Thomas' unbelief, can't we? Jesus, he came to conquer unbelief. And he is about to conquer Thomas's unbelief. Just as he had done eight days before, Jesus suddenly appears to them in a room. John again mentions that the doors were locked. Jesus had done it again. Not only that, but he repeats the same word of greeting that he gave to his disciples on the day that he got up from the dead and first appeared to them. All of these connections with that first Easter Sunday are for the purpose of communicating that this is the same man who appeared to them just one week before. We ought not be fooled into thinking that this is someone else. No, this is the very same person. And what does the Savior do? He comes into the room and he walks right up to Thomas and he invites him to touch his hands and his side. Jesus invites Thomas to do the very thing he wanted to do. But not only that, he admonishes Thomas to believe. He says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. We don't know if Thomas did what Jesus invited him to do, to, to put his hand on his, uh, his finger on his hands and his, uh, his hand on his side. But we can be sure that Thomas believed that Jesus got up from the dead. Just look at Thomas's response there in verse 28. What does Thomas say? He says, my Lord and my God. This confession, my Lord and my God, is worthy of rich meditation. But for now, let me just give you a few things to think about regarding this confession. Consider how personal this confession is. Thomas twice repeats the word, my. Jesus is his Lord and his God. What about you? Is Jesus your Lord and your God? 
You know, this declaration, it does not diminish Jesus' universal lordship or his deity as if it were, he were only Thomas' Lord and only Thomas' God. Rather, this reveals how we should each personally recognize Jesus as our Lord and God. Our Lord, the gracious ruler of our lives. And how we should personally recognize that Jesus is our God. Jesus is the God whom we worship. Jesus is God and He is worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. In fact, this is part of Jesus' point there in verse 29. The translators of verse 29 have, have read the first part of Jesus' reply as a question, but it could just as easily be a confirmation of Thomas's faith. Something in the vein of, you have believed because you have seen me. This kind of rendering paves the way for the blessing that follows, you'll notice there. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Either way, the point is the same for those who are reading this gospel. We who have not seen Jesus like Thomas and the other disciples did, still ought to believe. And if we do, we are blessed. This pronouncement of blessing is not a suggestion that we'll be, that we'll be happier or that our, our lives will go better if we believe or that we'll have more money or be healthier or more wise. No, it is something much more and much better. This pronouncement of blessing is a statement of God's approval. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are those who enjoy God's unmerited favor. Those who believe in Jesus are accepted by God the Father and will enjoy the eternal blessings of fellowship with Him. Friend, if you are here this morning and, and, and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus, if there ever were a passage of Scripture that speaks to you, it's this one. I would argue that all of Scripture speaks to you. But perhaps this one especially strikes home for you. Friend, Jesus' words to Thomas are words that you need to hear and words that I need to hear. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Stop rejecting Jesus. Don't go on in unbelief any longer. Friend, believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave. And not only that, believe that He is your Lord and your God. Believe that He is the one who created you, because He is. He created you to love Him and serve Him and glorify Him and worship Him. Believe that He is your Lord, the one who deserves to rightly rule over your life. Admit that you and I, we have not lived as we ought. Admit that you and I, we have sinned against God. Friend, we have all sinned against God. And the Bible is very honest about this. It says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has rebelled against God. And that's why. That's what the Bible calls sin. And that's why we needed Jesus to come. We have all tried to live as our own rulers and our own lords. When really... He is the one and only Lord. And friend, because God is holy and just, He must punish our sin. Our sins are infinitely offensive against the eternal God because they strike at His infinite goodness and love. And so we deserve to consciously face the infinite and eternal wrath of God forever in hell. But the good news of the Bible is this. The eternal Son of God took on flesh. Or as the beginning of John's Gospel puts it, the Word became flesh. Only Jesus could bear the wrath of God for sinners. And He could because He was fully man and fully God. Being fully man, He could sympathize with us and represent sinful humanity. And being fully God, He could bear the infinite and eternal wrath of the Father because He Himself was infinite and eternal. Friend, Jesus died on the cross for all of those who'd ever turned from their sins and believe in Him. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving to us all that He satisfied God's wrath for sin. God raised Jesus from the grave in that garden in order to reverse what took place in the first garden. And now, friend, Jesus says to you, like He said to Thomas, 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. No neutral position exists when it comes to Jesus. There is no middle ground. You either believe or you persist in unbelief. And friends, do not persist in unbelief any longer. Turn from your sins and believe in Jesus. Believe that he lived for you the life that you and I have not lived. Believe that he died for you, that he gave up his life for your sins. Believe that he was raised from the grave for you so that you would be accepted as righteous in God's sight on account of his righteousness. And if you want to know more about what it means to believe in Jesus, and please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. Or talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important than, you can think, than thinking through what it means to believe that Jesus lived for you and died for you and was raised from the grave for you and the forgiveness of your sins. This is the Savior's admonition to us. That we should believe and be blessed. And John, the writer of this gospel, piles on to the Savior's admonition to believe. And he indeed reminds us that it was the very reason that he wrote this gospel. Jesus did so many wonderful things, many of them which John did not record in this gospel. The ones that John did record, though, were recorded so that, that's a purpose clause there, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. John recorded a number of Jesus' miraculous signs, all of which are important, but none are more important than the signs of his cross and resurrection. And this is where I want us to conclude. This morning from John's gospel, we've seen the Savior's absent. He was absent from the tomb. We've seen the Savior's appearance. He revealed himself to Mary and the disciples. We've seen Jesus commission ambassadors to go and proclaim the good news that he's been raised from the grave. And we've seen the Savior's admonition to believe. From all that we've considered together this morning, I pray that we are more equipped to give an answer for why the tomb was empty. I pray that our joy in the risen Christ has been deepened. I pray that we have been strengthened to be ambassadors for Christ. But most of all, I pray that by the grace of God, we will heed the Savior's admonition to believe. We can heed the Savior's admonition to believe. We can trust in Him with full confidence and assurance because He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray together.